The Institute of Art and Ideas is excited to announce Closer to Truth as an official partner for our upcoming How the Light Gets In Festival at Hey on Why, happening this year, May 24th to 27th. Closer to Truth examines humanity's deepest questions with the world's greatest thinkers, from Nobel laureates and renowned scientists to theologians and best-selling authors. For 20 years, Closer to Truth has explored the deep questions of cosmos, consciousness, and meaning. This year, host Robert Lawrence Kuhn journeys to new depths with their philosophy of biology season, exploring topics like evolution, race, alien intelligences, sex and gender, and much more. Get early access to full episodes from this brand new season by registering for a free membership at their website, closertotruth.com. Discover the fundamental issues of existence, engage new and diverse ways of thinking, and seek out your own answers with Closer to Truth. The Institute of Art and Ideas, articles, videos, and podcasts. Hello and welcome to Philosophy for Our Times podcast that brings you the world's leading thinkers on today's biggest ideas. How deep are the philosophical roots of panpsychism? And how do older Indian systems of thought inform modern philosophical ideas? To explore these questions, we're joined on this week's episode by Chakravarti Ramprasad, Professor of Comparative Religion and Philosophy at Lancaster University, who helps us explore the realms of consciousness and experience through the lens of classical Indian philosophy. Actually, reality is consciousness, to put it baldly, uh, is a thought that has been kicking around in a surprising number of contexts for a surprisingly long time. If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to like and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Leave us a review, join the conversation on Facebook and Twitter, and head over to our website, iai.tv. Back now to Chakravarti Ram Prasad. Okay, so give people uh, enough time and enough luxury uh, to think, and they'll come up with any idea possible, right? And the possibility that actually reality is consciousness, to put it baldly, uh, is a thought that has been kicking around in a surprising number of contexts for a surprisingly long time. It's recently um, got a a certain sort of revival in uh, that most inhospitable of uh, institutional contexts, the American University analytic philosophy departments. But in fact, even in the West, uh, this idea has been there for a long time, the idea that somehow... Um, reality is consciousness. Now, I'm going to make a basic distinction that works pretty much as much in uh, the history of modern Western philosophy since the 17th, 18th century as it did in classical India. And there are um, sort of blurring uh, edges between these two ideas. One might broadly be called idealism, and the other is panpsychism, about which I'm going to be talking today. Under idealism, I mean by idealism, the claim that the world is in fact part of the consciousness of a subject considering it. That in, in some sense, you can collapse 
what seems other to the conscious subject into the contents of that subject's uh, states of awareness. On the other hand, panpsychism, although, as I said, it bleeds uh, in to idealism, panpsychism says that when we analyze or we have the, come to the best explanation possible for what this dazzling reality uh, is, it turns out to be something strikingly different from what it appears to be, which is it is not a reality that is present to something other than it, namely the subject of awareness who is contemplating it, but rather that there is one single kind of truth that will explain in its own existence both the world as it is found and that which finds it. Now, the broad category under which this view falls might be called monism. So there are many different kinds of monisms, but the most dominant monism, the one which uh, is perhaps the most pervasive today, and not only in philosophy, but is sort of taken for granted as part of everything from uh, computing and robotics through the social sciences and possibly to the sciences, uh, is a kind of what might be called a materialist monism. So what that says is that it might seem uh, that there is this mysterious situation in which an inert world is contemplated by and is experienced by something that is not of it, that by which it is possible to even contemplate the textured feature uh, sort of uh, quality of subjectivity or consciousness. It might only, it, is, it only seems that way because actually, if you pursue the analysis of what makes up this reality far enough, you're finally going to come to the stage where this consciousness that seems different from the world which it contemplates turns out, in fact, to be part of that material world itself. So there is some level at which there is an explanation, a philosophical explanation for consciousness in terms of what seems non-conscious, this world, the trees, the stars, and so forth. So that's a kind of materialist monism. There is only one thing. And that developed in different traditions at different times, but particularly in uh, modern Western thought as a reaction to what might be called a dualism, which is that there are two categories of being. One that is the material does not have any kind of reflexivity to it. And the consciousness or the subjectivity that contemplates it. So there are two different things most famously, of course, articulated by René Descartes as dualism of mind and body. 
So it was against this idea that that was this mysterious other thing that somehow exists in the world but is not of it that monist materialism has sought to uh, block and overcome. Panpsychism switches it around and says what seems to be actually not this subjectivity, this consciousness, this capacity to be aware of, that is to be assimilated into that which seems inert, that which seems like it does not have a perspective back. Rather, that world is no different at some fundamental level than the consciousness which contemplates it. That is actually a fundamental reality, which is the same. So panpsychism is also a monism. It's also trying to say there is only one explanation, one principle that explains everything. I'll turn to some of the issues that come uh, out of this sort of contemporary uh, sort of phrasing of panpsychism after I have looked at two um, classical Indian systems of thought, one of them very ancient, um, which tried, which came up with two rather different ways of claiming that there is only one principle that explains everything and that is somehow to be characterized as consciousness, not non-consciousness. Once I have kind of given the outlines of these two systems, and I will simplify uh, terribly because you have hundreds of texts written over uh, many uh, centuries, even millennia. Once I have done that, uh, I, will, I will use that to confront some of the questions we now face in panpsychism as it has developed in the West. One system uh, called Advaita, literally means non-dualism, it gives it away there, non-dualism, says that you must at some level come to understand that what is irreducible, what is ultimate in the sense there is no further principle of explanation, is this consciousness. But it takes a very particular tack in arguing for this. It doesn't actually sort of get its hands dirty with trying to break up the constitution of the world, the real world, that becomes present to consciousness. It actually says, look, the features of our experience of the world of any subject's experience of the world, the features um, seem to suggest this highly, infinitely plural uh, set of entities stretching across time and space. And you might get more fine-grained descriptions of them. Obviously, these systems did not know anything about contemporary science. But simply in a conceptual way, they said you could... Um, analyze these things down to uh, very fine-grained levels. And you might well find that what you thought was materially irreducible can be analyzed through further investigation and the use of our perception and our reasoning to 
uh, smaller kinds of elements. But in that kind of analysis, you are, in fact, never going to escape the objectivity, the non-consciousness of what you encounter. Whatever you analyze down to will always be the object, never the subject of the awareness of it. It's, as it were, objects all the way down, finer grained analysis still leaves you trapped in this world. However, the system argues, if you think about what are the conditions under which this kind of analysis of objects is possible, whether at the largest or at the smallest scales, what is the condition of its, the possibility of this analysis? It is the capacity that consciousness has to cognize. So however much we may postulate the universe as having existed before and after any consciousness of it, because that alone explains the features as we find it, we are still in some fundamental way encompassing this objective reality in the consciousness of it. Not one consciousness here or there or anywhere else, because each is limited in its occurrence. But the subjective capacity to grasp, it is what makes the understanding of objectivity possible. So even, and this is the sort of uh, paradox at the heart of non-duality's uh, insight, even when it is necessary to think of objects, that is to say the universe as we find it, when you think of objects as independent of the subjective grasp of it, even the articulation of that principle is limited to consciousness itself. So independently of our subjective capacity, the subjective capacity to understand the world, independently of it, you can never grasp a world. The world is, in some sense, the case of consciousness of it. So this, so they take many kinds of arguments which talk about the reality of the world in its non-material state and say, you can keep on getting down one dimension of analysis, but you cannot flip the world as it is found and encompass consciousness of it. Consciousness is what is ultimately uh, the irreducible. So what it does, therefore, is to leave the world as it is, but says that what explains it is consciousness. And that consciousness is what overcomes this apparent duality between the awareness of this reality and the reality that awareness confronts. So it is panpsychist in the sense, it doesn't directly say this is consciousness, but rather that the pointing to anything as non-conscious is itself based on consciousness. A different school, which arose uh, slightly later in the 10th, 11th century, 
It has many names, but uh, the, the name which is perhaps most uh, expressive of its position, it's called Pratyabhignya, which really means uh, recognition, recognition, or the recovery of consciousness. Now, this system says that actually, when we do break down the world that is found to consciousness, we get to a level of explanation where it no longer makes sense to talk about subjects and objects. And again, developed as it was between 10th and 11th, about a thousand years ago, it is not at all, uh, as it were, scientific. It does not speak at all with knowledge of contemporary science. Yet it gives an eerily uh, sort of um, percipient explanation of reality by saying, ultimately, what you have is a kind of uh, energy, an energy that is conscious. And it is the uh, diversification of this underlying energy and it's what it calls its, um, its modulations or its vibration. It's the way it develops that leads to the diversification that we find in reality, including what is preserved of this, this conscious energy, which is our awareness and other things which seem as if they are non-aware. So, of course, it is true that ordinary experience seems to present the, the difference between uh, consciousness and its objects, but ultimately, the analysis will take us down beyond such a distinction to find that the universe is still, in fact, irreducibly conscious. And this is a better explanation than the one that says mysteriously that there is a world, but out of it emerges consciousness which is not material. So, of course, they didn't know anything about contemporary sort of physicalisms and so forth, but they were looking at their opponents and they said, look, between our two explanations, yours is going to present the capacity for consciousness to be aware of reality as something mysterious emerging out of this reality. Whereas what we are saying is, get past the apparent mystery that the reality seems to be different from consciousness, and you will find a single explanatory principle. So that second system, unlike the first, is willing to get its hands dirty. It's willing to go down into the world and say, our ontology, our collection of the furniture of the world must itself be pulled apart to the level of consciousness. Do you want to hear more from the world's leading thinkers? If the answer to that question is yes, subscribe to iai.tv for unlimited access to thousands of debates, talks, articles, academy courses and live events. Are you bored of the surface level news, politics, sports and entertainment coverage on your newsfeed? Go deeper. Get the philosophy behind the news and get the latest big ideas from the world's leading thinkers on subjects at the core of the human condition, life, the universe and everything in between. It's free for the first month and there's no commitment to pay, so subscribe now to understand the world beyond the surface level. That has quite a lot of bearing on the way 
panpsychism is developing now. Because what contemporary panpsychists in the last sort of 15, 20 years, people like Velmans and Galen Strawson and others have argued, is to say, look, this is not unscientific. This is not anti-scientific. This is not against the natural view of the world. What is the natural view of the world? The natural view of the world is that it is explained wholly by physics. And the argument there is to say, look, physics, even quantum physics, gets down to particular kinds of mathematical representations. But the commitment we make to these representations being about something that is uh, not conscious, is as it were non-conscious material, is actually a step beyond what the physics itself allows. It's a picture we give to a mathematics of, on, about which we cannot make any verbal sense otherwise. So the panpsychists say, in a way very reminiscent of what these Pratyabhignya theorists, the recognition theorists say, they say, look, um, actually, you can do all the analysis you want with whatever capacities you have and whatever theories you have of the world you find. But the metaphysical explanation, that is not the physical explanation, but the metaphysical explanation actually goes beyond anything we can find through our exploration. So you might as well call the underlying reality in some way consciousness and say that material evolves from it than to say the other way around that the underlying reality is non-material, uh, sorry, non-conscious materiality out of which consciousness emerges. Now, it's interesting, and I think for the history of ideas, but also in terms of widening our understanding of the investigations people have given about the world over time, it is interesting and necessary, I think, perhaps for contemporary panpsychists to look at these classical Indian systems. One reason I've already covered, which is that here are two competing views with radically different strategies for challenging our ordinary uh, sense that there is a, a, a duality between the subject of uh, consciousness and the objects that confront it. But these systems also working in very different contexts did two things, I think, which are required today. One, they spent an awful lot of time asking a very specific question, which is, how do we define what we mean by consciousness simply in conceptual terms? Well, that is to say, without being committed to some larger metaphysics. And this has been a problem with contemporary philosophy. It's plenty on consciousness studies, but a lot of the consciousness for theories, for example, those that think about you know, the computational model of consciousness, the ones that talk about uh, non-Cartesian ways of consciousness and so forth, the ones that neuroscientists take themselves to be looking for, 
they all work with this monist materialism as the background. They start with saying, well, look, we know that somehow consciousness has to be reduced down to the world. That is to say, the world of physics. The question is, how are we going to do it? What, of course, lacking the science, but also facing radically different systems in a very pluralistic sort of intellectual ecology, the classical Indian said, first of all, what are we talking about? Consciousness need not necessarily simply be the subject. The subject might be that which has an individual perspective, which is uh, sort of uh, confined in a body or um, parts of the body. But consciousness is a more formal kind of entity, something uh, the explanation for which should be accessible, uh, applicable to any node of subjectivity. Also, there is such a thing as experience. Experience is a particular undergoing. It has content. It is like something to undergo a con uh, an event in experience. But the ancient Indians were saying, is there a distinction between experience in its uh, sort of diversity, in its uh, temporal flow, and the consciousness that renders experience possible? Can this consciousness be attained free of content? Questions that comparative philosophy of religion, for example, has just been tackling in the last 30 or 40 years. So what we have is, because I don't have the time to go through all of those kinds of uh, theories, but what we find, what we could learn from these classical Indian systems as they worked over hundreds of years in several different systems, both these two systems as well as those which uh, attacked them, differed from them, and so forth, is the need to think much more carefully about the words that we run together. I've been doing to, running together awareness, experience, subjectivity, consciousness, cognition. We need to work through them and confront what panpsychism, contemporary panpsychism is still struggling to uh, come to terms with, which is that whatever that principle on which it's basing its explanation is not something that is normally accessible, not something that we ordinarily have. So to talk about experience, we don't experience the world as being conscious. So it's not enough to use words like consciousness and experience interchangeably. There must be some kind of a principle of explanation that will allow us to make the coherent case that what is irreducible is this formal feature of something that is reflexive, what the uh, Indian philosophers called luminosity, that is the capacity intrinsically to be able to reflect upon its own occurrence. And then they gave different kinds of explanations for it. So one area in which panpsychism must uh, develop a lot more is to ask more careful and probing questions about how you define consciousness in a way that moves us away from normal uses of experience and so forth. And that leads me to the second, perhaps more dramatic problem that contemporary panpsychism makes, which is that, of course, it's manifestly the case that ordinary experience does present the world 
in this very dualistic way. That's how we function. Uh, we would be absolutely paralyzed if we thought that somehow there is no difference between you and me and this, uh, and, 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 and this tent and, and the skies. We do have a real challenge with any kind of radical revision of the account of reality. So we have to ask ourselves, if it is the case that underlying principle of reality is monistic, why is it that we have this sense of experience of duality? Now here, a materialistic monist would say, I have an explanation, I have an evolutionary psychological explanation. It is just that materials developed and combined in different ways, and although we haven't quite got the explanation, some set of reactions at the physical level, i.e. to do with chemicals, generated what seems to be separate from it, i.e. consciousness. That's a problem, but at least they have a direction of travel. But for a panpsychist, it's much more challenging. What kind of an explanation could you give? What, for example, would be the evolutionary advantage of being so radically wrong about our experience? Now, here the classical Indian systems do have a very a, a suggestion that, or, or, or a, a, an understanding that is extremely challenging and confusing to us, which is they move into the idea of uh, a fundamental reality, your truth, uh, attained through spiritual discipline, something that says, actually, the purpose of human life is to attain this radically revisionary insight about the world. It might be a oneness of God. With God, it might be an attainment of liberation from the conditions of life. Whatever they are, they are not naturalistic. They are things that ask us to transcend the natural order of things. Now, therefore, when we try and talk in a, in a kind of a truly global way, in a way that looks at other traditions, both past and present, in trying to tackle this radical, exhilarating, but confusing and bewildering possibility that reality is consciousness in some way that is very different from how we take it to be, we have this challenge. Are we going to say, there are limits to naturalism, that in fact the ancients were right, that there are truths that cannot be tackled by empirical investigation? Or are we going to say, even though it's not clear to us, we can have a revisionary metaphysics, a complete overhauling of the conditions for the possibility of our experience, and yet explain it scientifically? I think that is the challenge that faces us today. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Philosophy for Our Times. Remember to like, subscribe and review wherever you listen. And tune in next week for more big ideas from the world's leading thinkers.